So glad to be with you guys. So glad to be uh, worshiping together and then to go straight from here back to campus. It'll be our first uh, time after a long uh, winter break to be back on campus. So those of us who are serving will jet out of here right after this gathering and we'll head to campus and do it all over again. Um, I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've never met you, uh, I want to start by sharing a little story with you about my own life. I, I remember um, starting to feel like spiritually restless kind of near the start of high school, uh, which was like for me like five years ago, five, ten years ago. Um, I wondered, I hope, I hope that would work. Okay. I wondered about eternal things. I was shaken by seeing people that I knew close to me die. Um, I remember asking my mom one day for a Bible to read, and, and she pulled one out of uh, her bottom drawer of her nightstand, and she handed it to me. And I would sit in bed at night, most nights, no joke, through high school, reading the Bible. And, and I, I started like, I don't know, just read from the beginning, right? That's how you read a book. And I was like, no way. Um, so found this other big section in, near the back called the New Testament. And I like that way better. So I basically just kept reading in the New Testament. I read the Gospels five, six, seven times over. And I had a little spiral bound notebook. And I would take notes of the verses that I really liked. Now, like any good teenager who's deeply, deeply insecure about himself, I didn't tell anybody that I did this. It was my little secret. I, I had Christian friends, or at least friends that I knew that read the Bible, uh, that went to church, but I was not about to tell them how I spent most of my nights. I was fearful of what they would say. I was probably more fearful of what my irreligious friends would say. And I noticed early on, as I read uh, in the Gospels, that Jesus messed up people's lives. He messed up their lives. And I got it, I think, quickly. And I, I honestly believe this is one of the best gifts that God has given me in my life. I feel like I understood really quickly that what it means to follow Jesus is nothing small, that it is no small thing to choose to follow and be a disciple of Jesus. That is, if I were to take this thing seriously, I understood it, that a whole bunch of stuff in my life was going to change. Now, I was a snotty, cocky teenager back then, okay? So that, that kind of shapes what I'm about to say. But I saw the way that Jesus interacted with people. I saw the change and what he called people to and how their lives were turned upside down. And then I would look at my Christian friends at my school and I would think, they just basically live like me. But for an hour a week, they go to a church building and sing some songs. Now, again, that's probably a little bit of my own self-righteousness and pride, but that's how I saw it back then. Now, don't get me wrong. Part of me was really drawn to that idea. Oh, sweet. So I can like, I can sort of fill the, the, the spiritual bucket. I can check the spiritual thing off of my life. I can just maybe pray a prayer or go to some church services, but then I can live however I want. But see, the problem was that I read too much of the Gospels to know that that could actually be possible, like that, that you can't actually do that. And there was this part of me that really wanted Jesus to mess up my life. I wanted to see the change in my life like I saw in the lives of the, the people of the New Testament, of the disciples. And I'll share a little bit more of my story later. I'm privileged today to open up 
It's the book of Colossians. We're going to spend seven weeks in the four chapters of this letter, and still we will only barely scratch the surface of its depth. Um, if, if you've never read Colossians or, or it's been a while since you've read it, here's what strikes me as I read it a few times through this past week. It is it's this really cool sort of tension and balance. It is uh, stunningly rich in theology, especially around Jesus. There's like scholars would say deep, rich, lofty Christology, which is the study of Jesus. But it is also strikingly down to earth. It is lofty, no doubt, but it doesn't just live in the clouds. It comes down to real life. It moves almost freely, rhythmically between rich reflection and real life. And so, so for those of us who are naturally bent towards theology and, 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 and discussion and reflection, the thinkers in the room, Colossians will challenge us and will ask us, okay, that's great that you love to think about those things. That's great that you love to sit around and have like really long conversations, maybe even debates with people about theology, but how is that theology shaping how you live your life today? Now that's me, I live in that space. And my wife Tiffany does this beautiful thing where she's always like, that's great, honey. It's great that you learned that today in your commentary reading. How is that affecting how you're gonna walk with Jesus? I don't, yeah, I, I don't know, let me think about that. Um, and for those of us who th- sit through sermons and we think the whole time, is this guy ever gonna get to the part where it has anything to do with my real life? You might think that more when I teach than, than others, I don't know. Um, Colossians invites us to just sit and to wonder at the majesty of Jesus Christ, to strain our minds to lay hold of just a little bit more of how beautiful he is. And so often as we stay, when we're starting a new uh, book of the Bible here on Sundays, we would encourage you to consider incorporating Colossians into your Bible reading time, into your devotional time. Our hope is not that we just study it here And then it doesn't really follow us into our day-to-day lives outside of here, but that we would be talking about it. It'd make its way into friendships, into small groups, into uh, mealtimes, as you're gathered around a table with your family or with friends, that we would be journaling and praying through Colossians as a church family. So let's tackle some of the background of the book of Colossians. I'm gonna try really hard not to spend too much time on this. I know the doers in the room are like, come on, man, please, not too much background. Um, but let's, let's try to fly through. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, we find out in the first verse, with Timothy, who is sort of his understudy, his disciple. Uh, Paul is almost certainly in prison, we find out from later in the book. Uh, when he pens this letter, he's probably in Rome. It's about 65 AD, and he is writing to a newly formed church in the city of Colossae in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, Colossae is about 100 miles inland from Ephesus, which was on the shore, and it's on this major trade route. So people would frequently come through the city of Colossae. Most scholars believe that at the time he wrote the letter, Paul had never visited the people in this church. He had never been there physically We find out in chapter one that the church was actually planted by this guy named Epaphras. Epaphras was a Colossian. Uh, He was converted to the faith 
in Ephesus. So Apostle Paul spent about two years in Ephesus. It's where he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. It was to that group of people. He went there. He stayed there for two years. Epaphras meets Paul, gets connected with the church there, becomes a Christian, makes the 100-mile journey back to his hometown, and he starts a church. He plants the Colossian church. And the church was made up of some Jews and some Gentiles, but way more Gentiles than Jews. And as is the occasion for almost all of Paul's letters, there are heresies. There are false teachings, false doctrines that are swirling around this brand new infantile church. And some of the issues were coming from the Jews in the congregation who were not recognizing the new covenant. And some of them were coming from Gentiles who were taking Christianity and sort of blending it with all sorts of pagan, mysticism, religious stuff. It's called syncretism. They were taking Christianity and blending it with other things and saying, we can still do Christianity this way. And while we aren't told in entirety what Paul's concerns are, it becomes clear that whatever it is, he sees it as being rooted in an improper view of Jesus. Hence the lofty, rich theology about Jesus that we'll actually get into next week. And the emphasis in, in how we live in light of who Jesus is. Paul opens the letter with a greeting that reads, grace and peace to you. And then at the very end of the letter, he ends with the words, grace be with you. So grace is the bookends of the book of Colossians. And those bookends tell us, I think, something about what Paul is trying to get across to the Colossian people. He wanted them to know and to live and to experience the grace of God. Which, to put it another way, he wanted them to know and to live the gospel. The gospel, the good news, that, that the message that the one true God who made us came to us, came to be with us in the person of Jesus Christ. The eternal son of God came to us to what? To live perfectly human and perfectly God showing us that our God wants to heal us. He wants to redeem us and forgive us and establishing himself as the one true king among all the imposters in the world. He came to live. He came to die to atone for the sin of the world, to break the curse from all the way back in Genesis, doing the thing that no one thought that God would or could do, suffering and dying because of his great love for us. So he lived, he died, and then he rose victorious over sin, evil, and death, and he gifted his people, those who call on his name with the Holy Spirit, God himself, that we might be a new people who live in the power of the resurrection now, even while we wait for his return and the restoration of all things. This is the gospel this is the grace of God. This is the power of God. It's a message. A gospel is a message. It's an announcement. The word means an announcement. It's something you proclaim with your mouth, with words. But at the same time, it's never just words. Because it has this power to transform everything about us. It can and it should and it was absolutely turning the Colossians' lives upside down. They knew the gospel. They understood the gospel, but they didn't just know it as like intellectual fact. 
They experienced it. They lived it. It touched their lives in very real ways. The gospel was doing something in them as individuals and as a community. And this whole letter, this whole book of Colossians reads like an invitation to continue to have the gospel shape them. Over and over and over again, Paul is inviting them, don't stop. What God has accomplished in and through you, there there is so much more to come. Continue allowing the gospel to change you. And so my big question for us today is this, what does the gospel do? What does the gospel do in a person, in a community? How does it work in us? I think many of us in this room, maybe even all of us or most of us, the vast majority, we could give an answer to the question, what is the gospel? We could, we could probably come up with some kind of answer for that question, what is the gospel? But if I asked you, what does the gospel do? How does the gospel work? What does the gospel accomplish in a person? I wonder if we would struggle to answer that, to explain how we've seen that power at work in us and in the people around us. And for the earliest Christians, we see this over and over again in the New Testament. The gospel was never just about believing the right theology or having a heart-level experience. Not that it's not those things, but it was never just those things. The gospel for them, for the Colossians, was never just a part of the past. Something in the rear view, rear view mirror. Maybe it gets a mention when we share our testimony, when we tell our salvation story, but then it continues to move further and further into the background. You see, the gospel was and is always on the move. It's always taking ground, always redeeming, always restoring, always inviting us into a more costly obedience, a more sacrificial generosity. It's always leading us into deeper intimacy with God, into truer love of our neighbors. It was never just what the gospel did. As much as we are commanded to remember and to cherish and to celebrate all that God has done in the past in our lives, we should do that. But it's also about God was, what God was doing now and what he would continue to do and would one day do at Jesus' return. And so all of that background helps us make sense of how Paul opens his letter to the Colossians. He spends the first two verses greeting them. We'll go through that quickly. Then in verses three to eight, he encourages them with, get this, what the gospel has already done in them. He takes time as sort of like a spiritual father over this young church to encourage them. And he essentially says, here's what the gospel has already produced in you. Be encouraged at what God has done in your midst. And then in verses 9 to 14, where we'll end today, he prays essentially for the gospel to continue, to keep doing its work of transforming them and making them more and more like Jesus. So that's the framework of these first half of Colossians 1, what the gospel has already accomplished and what Paul is praying that it will continue to accomplish in them in the days ahead. And so as we move through the text, we'll be answering our big question. What does the gospel do? What does it do to a person? What does it do to a community? How does it change us? And so finally, after all the intro, let's dive in. Colossians 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God 
And Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Notice that Paul calls himself an apostle, what, by the will of God, because it was certainly not Paul's plan for his life to be a church planter, to be an apostle, to lead the early church, right? He had this encounter with the risen Jesus on his road to Damascus, and he went from being a leader who who persecuted Christians to an actual disciple of Christ. And that fact of his own life was never far from his memory. We see it in all of his letters. He lived in close proximity, even as the days and months and years went by, he lived in close proximity to that story of what changed his life. He addresses the letter to the holy people, and in some translations, that reads the saints. He uses that term broadly to describe anyone who has come to Jesus in repentance, anyone who has fallen on their faces and said, I can't do this. I need rescued. I have sin in my life. There is something that is keeping me from you, God. I need to be made new. I need to be born again. I need to start over. Anyone who has done that, who has received the grace and the mercy of God in Paul's eyes is a saint. And so that's how we understand that word here at H2O. And then he draws attention right to the Colossians locations. He says they are in Colossae. And then in between, he calls them the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says they are in Christ. He's addressing their location. He's reminding them that they are both in Colossae and in Jesus. And it's sort of this subtle little thing that he does that scholars call parallelism, where you drop something in the middle and then you put something that looks the same on either side of it. And Paul is making a point here. He's saying that you guys have a present home and you have a future home. He does not diminish their geographic location, but he plants this seed that he'll continue to draw out later in the book, and we'll get to that as we move through this series. And this is it. Their spiritual location, the fact that they're in Christ, will instruct and will shape their living in their physical, present location. We're going to look at all the different ways that the gospel changes us, the things that transform in and about us when we live in the gospel. And the first thing that we see is that the gospel transforms our identity. We are absolutely citizens of a particular place in a particular time, and we are also absolutely citizens of Jesus's kingdom. And it's because of our citizenship in Jesus that we seek the good of our city. That's the vision for this church. That's our vision for your life, that we would be in Bowling Green or whatever city that is for you, that we would be in the city and be in Christ. Not standing against our city, not wringing our hands of our city, our broken city, our broken campus, but learning together. Listen to this, learning together how to put flesh and bone, hands and feet on this spiritual reality that while we live in this place, we are also citizens of heaven, called to be a part of Jesus's kingdom come here in this city in this moment. And so having made his introduction, Paul now moves into these three through eight verses where he's just going to encourage, he's going to lavish the Colossians with all sorts of encouragement. He tells them how he's thanking them before God in his prayers. He's thinking of them, that as he thinks of them, his heart 
is filled. Remember, this is a church he's never visited. Like, it's possible the only person he knows in this whole church is this guy, Epaphras. But his heart is with them. Why is he thanking God for the Colossians? The answer comes in verse 4, right? Because of, he says, their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all God's people. I love how he holds those two things together. It almost reads as if they are almost one and the same. Like their faith led them to love better, and because they loved each other so well, their faith was deepened. I think we often read a little line like this, and we just, just breeze right past it. I know I do. But remember, again, this is a church full of both Gentiles and Jews, right? Folks with the, the, the Jews, a rich, rich history in the faith with ancestry that took them all the way back to Abraham with all sorts of religious and cultural customs, worshiping together, gathering around the gospel together with people who would have grown up worshiping all sorts of pagan gods and who would, who would have viewed the Roman emperor as divine. Can you imagine all of them? We think about the conflict and the division in our world today. Can you imagine those folks gathering together to share meals, to sing songs, to tell the stories of Jesus, to worship Jesus. This is an ethnically, socially, religiously, culturally diverse with all sorts of natural differences that should have separated them. But what moves Paul to praise God for them is their love for one another. They're not just a group of people who get together because they believe all the same things. They're not just like this nice social club that helps meet folks' social needs. The second thing that we see in this letter through the Colossians, what Paul is inviting them to, is that the gospel transforms our relationships. The Colossians became this most unlikely family of people changed by Jesus. They were becoming a new community. They were becoming a new kind of human. Their faith in Jesus so unified them that where you would expect hatred and mistrust, there was love. And get this, it would have absolutely puzzled the world around them, right? There's no category in the ancient world for making sense of understanding why people who are so different would be together and would actually love each other. Did you know that so much of the early church's witness like, how did this thing go from not many people to this massive worldwide movement of Jesus followers? How did that start at the very beginning? It wasn't because the church had power. It wasn't because they had all sorts of social influence. A lot of it, I might venture to even argue that most of it was because a watching world looked at these people who should have hated each other and saw them loving each other and loving their city and serving the people around them that they scratched their heads and they thought, I don't know what that is, but I want in on it. There's some sort of power in that that makes no sense in our world. Why do they do that? And folks would see it, they'd get involved, they'd join the church, their lives would be turned upside down. And it goes on and on and on. So where does this kind of faith and this kind of love come from? Paul answers it in verse five, second half. He says it comes from the hope that is stored up for them in heaven. The hope that Paul says is found in the gospel that they've embraced. So the Colossians lived in the present, but with their eyes and their hearts postured toward the future. 
The gospel is the good news, right? That Jesus is the one true king. And that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father and Satan and all that belongs to him will be vanquished forever. And when Jesus ushers in the resurrection age, all of us who are in him will rise to rule and reign over a glorious, sinless creation. And get this, it wasn't just a future thing for the Colossians. They knew that this power, this resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead was breaking into their world, not in full, in bits and pieces. It was breaking in then. The next thing we see is that the gospel transformed, transforms our vision. Their hope, the Colossians' hope, was not some fairy tale, pie in the sky sort of thing for them. Because it was real, because they believed it, they waited in eager expectation for it, right? Think about this community that formed. Think about this, right? So there's all these people that shouldn't like each other. They should hate each other, but they're all together and they love each other and they're worshiping Jesus together. How, how does that happen? It happens because you live with your eye toward the future. So if Jesus was gonna come back one day and he was gonna gather everybody from every corner of the globe into one place to worship him for all of eternity, then it, made, it would make no sense to not live that way then. Like it would make all the sense in the world that the Colossian church would be diverse, that there would be people of different languages and different cultures and different ethnicities and different backgrounds because that's how the story ends. Let's live that way now, right? That's what they understood. That's an example of how they got it, that the future is breaking in now. Paul goes on to say that the gospel is bearing fruit and it is growing. We'll find out in a second what that is, but this idea of bearing fruit, of growing, of increasing, points us all the way back to Genesis chapter one. That's what we were made to do. Genesis 1:28, right? Be fruitful, increase. God created us and he planted us in this perfect creation and he invited us to what? To cultivate life and beauty and goodness. When the gospel is understood, it always, always bears fruit. It's always moving in the human heart, increasing and transforming. See, my fear and what I worry about is that we see the gospel as like just a set of beliefs that we check off, right? Maybe some sort of formula that we can know that when we die, we get to heaven. And I worry that we settle for a gospel that matters when we first come to faith, but then continues to move further and further into the background. It's a gospel, honestly, without much power. It may inform our relig religious belief, but it does not transform our inner being. I'm gonna say that again. It may inform our religious belief, but it does not transform our inner being. So I stayed in that season of being spiritually restless all through high school, all four years of high school. Here I am, late at night, reading my Bible, not every night, a lot of nights, um, taking my notes with my spiral-bound notebook, highlighting things in my Bible. And then I went off to college, and this restlessness really intensified. It got so that I was like borderline depressed, sleeping a bunch of the day, really struggling because I was just so wrecked by like wanting to figure out what I believed about life and death and faith in God. And I connected with a friend of mine who I used to uh, party with in high school. Hope my mom's not listening to this. Um, 
Uh, hi, Mom, if you are. Uh, I knew she had become a Christian and that she was a part of this campus ministry over at BGSU. And we were, this is honestly a true story. We, we were sitting in the sundial, which is like a dining hall over on campus. I was a student down at Finley, but I was connected with a bunch of friends up here at BG. And so I would come up all the time and sitting in the sundial and I was, she was sharing the gospel with me. She laid it all out. And I had been in the Bible, I had read a bunch, but there was something like that was happening as she was just sharing the gospel and inviting me into a life of discipleship. And get this, I was in the middle of like sort of mocking her, like telling her, uh, it's just, it's too easy, right? You just, you're telling me I just have to say this thing. I just have to surrender. I just have to believe that I'm a sinner. And then I'm just going to like cash that in and then go live however I want to live. So I'm in the middle of sort of pushing back, being snarky. And this friend of hers walks up and she goes, Lindsay, I just gave my life to Jesus last night at group. And my friend Lindsay gets up and they're like crying and they're hugging each other. And it's this really tender moment. And I feel like an absolute fool. Because here I am like saying this stuff, I don't know if this is real, it seems too cheap. And then someone walks up and literally this girl I found out she's been praying for and she'd been investing in relationally gave her life to Jesus. And something happened in that moment for me. I knew that I wanted to see more. And so to make a really long story short, I got plugged in with that ministry and it's a major part of the story of how I really started walking with Jesus. See, I, I heard the gospel from my friend but I didn't just hear it. It was never just words. I saw it alive in her life and in the friends around her. I started getting involved. I started to see, I started to watch and be a student of people. And I saw the Lord truly change them to win victories for them, to overcome sin for them, to use them, to share the gospel, to go out ahead of them, to lead their friends to Jesus. I saw their faith. I saw their boldness. I saw their commitment to live and walk in holiness. And it made me hungry for that kind of Christianity. Can the people around us see the power of the gospel alive in us? Let's finish with Paul's account of his prayer for the church. I promise this part will go quickest. What he's asking God to keep doing in them as the gospel takes root. I know it sounds cliche, but there are legitimately six, at least, sermons in these six verses. And so what I want to do is just look simply at what are the things that he asks God to do for them. The first thing he asks is that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, if you're like me, the knowledge of God's will, you're like, sweet, I would love to know what God wants me to do about this one thing. Like I got this, I'm at a crossroads, I got this decision to make, and I wanna know, should I buy this car? Should I change my job? Should I marry this person? Should I propose to this person? Should I break up with this person? Whatever it may be. We have this stuff, this real life stuff, and we're like, oh, this is sweet. Okay, God's gonna just tell me what his will is for my life. And all of that stuff matters. All of it God cares about. But listen to this, none of it is primary. None of it is primary. The will of God for us is much more expansive than the sum of the things that we are wrestling with, the decisions set before us. 
How do we know that? Look at the next line. Why do we seek the will of God? So that we will live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So the question that hangs above every other question about God's will for our lives is this. God, what would please you? God, what would give you the most honor and bring your heart the most joy? The gospel transforms, next thing, our desires we rank every other pursuit below pleasing God. It's not to say that the things that we pursue are wrong, that they're misguided, that they're in and of themselves evil. I mean, they could be. If they're sinful, they could be. But it doesn't mean that all things are. It just means that everything gets run through this filter. God, how might I honor you? You are my God. You are my Lord and my King. How might I honor you? That little phrase that we would please the Lord in every way is absolutely staggering. In every way. That means that there is no single sphere of your life. There is no inch of your heart that belongs to you alone. Everything can either honor him or dishonor him. And if we're honest, that's scary. That's terrifying. And we, we don't want to surrender to that level, right? We don't want to give up that much control. We would rather live in the illusion that we can control things, that, that we know what's best. But look at what, look what happens. This is where we're going to end. Look at what happens when we lay it all at his feet. It starts in the second half of verse 10. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but this is what our lives will produce when what we want most is to please God, which is what the gospel does in us by changing our desires, knowledge, power, endurance, patience, joy, gratitude. Knowledge, power, endurance, patience, joy, and gratitude. Is there anyone here that reads that list and says, no, I'm good. I got it. I don't need much of that stuff. I feel like I'm, it's like overflowing in me. I got too much of it. God, dial it back a little. I do all of this stuff just so perfectly. I don't need it, right? Knowledge to behold more and more the beauty and the majesty of God. Power to be redeemed in the deepest, the darkest, the most wounded parts of your heart. Endurance to be faithful in the face of temptation and trial and pain and loss. Patience to walk in trust and hope that God will accomplish his work. Joy to fix your eyes on Jesus no matter what is going on around you. And gratitude to remember the goodness of God and to fight against the gravitational pull toward jealousy. All of that, and this is not a comprehensive list. All of that is what comes out of us. It's the fruit that we bear. It's what the gospel does and will continue to do until we breathe our last breath. It changes our identity, changes our relationships, our vision, our desires. It changes our entire hearts. What would it look like to be transformed like this? To have the gospel so thoroughly reshape and reform us. It's what Paul is praying for the Colossians. It's what God wants for us today. It's the invitation to each and every one of us here. It's the work that he will accomplish in us if we give him our lives and we allow the gospel to take root in us. Will we surrender or will we resist? Do we want this kind of transformation or do we see it as a threat? I would invite you to wrestle with these questions as you leave this place. The end with this benediction, may our gospel not be small, 
May it not ask very little of us. May we become a people who fix our eyes on Jesus and with increasing joy, his gospel, which is the power of God to save and to redeem and to remake us, that we might be made more like Jesus Christ and a lost and hurting world would be drawn to their God made alive in us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me?